finding your way back home, and we're going to use the parable of the prodigal son as kind of an overarching theme, uh, and we're going to go through it over the next several weeks as we go through the last of March here and all through uh, the month of April. Did you ever run away from home? Any of you ever try? Uh, I did once as a little guy, uh, ran away from home, got to the end of the lane, changed my mind, and came back. Now, you know, it, it's not hard to find your way back home if you never get off the property. You know what I mean? <laughs> but sometimes it's not so easy to find your way back home. And, and that may be one of the reasons why Jesus told this parable of a lost son, the one that we oftentimes call the prodigal son. It's not only the most beloved of all of his parables, it is the story that captures in a tiny amount of space the entire history of God's plan from the very beginning. Now, if you've ever run away from home or been lost without directions or stopped by an unexpected delay or deployed to another part of the world with no knowledge of when you might be coming home, then you can relate to this parable that Jesus told. If you've ever been frustrated with your circumstances, restless to live life differently, upset because no one seems to understand you, or trapped in what you think is a mediocre existence, then you can relate to this gripping story. If you've ever been overshadowed by a sibling, overlooked by a parent, overworked in the family, or overcome with a longing to do something different, then you can relate to the prodigal himself. I am convinced that every one of us here can not only understand this story easily, all of us in this room can say, hey, that's me. This is my story too. Now, when Jesus told the story for the first time, it was late in his earthly ministry. As a matter of fact, folks, it wasn't all that long before he came to this moment that we celebrate today as Palm Sunday when he triumphantly entered into the city of Jerusalem. That marked the beginning of the most powerful chapter of God's epic story for all time. Now, to understand the significance of the last week of the life of Jesus in this world, one needs to understand what brought him to this moment. And this parable, I believe, will help us grasp the gravity of the decision and choice that Jesus made to become our Savior. The, the story of the, uh, of, of the prodigal is in chapter 15 of Luke, and so I, I want you to follow along there, so if you want to open your Bibles or, or your smartphone or your tablet or something like that and follow along, please do. But I, I want to I take you to the very last phrase of chapter 14 of Luke, because I'm not convinced it belongs at the end of chapter 14. It may belong with the beginning of chapter 15. Here's the phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you say, what? Well, we use similar idioms. Um, give me your ears. If I say that, you know what I mean, although literally that would be hard to do. We, we sometimes say, listen up, this is important, or clean out your ears and pay attention. And if somebody's not good at listening, we say, ah, don't waste your breath on him. Or if you're ready to hear what somebody has to say, you can say, I'm all ears. Well, literally those aren't true, but we know what they mean, and it means I'm ready to listen or this is important. Pay close attention. When Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This matters. Don't miss this. And then I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 15, because this all fits. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. That's why they had come. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, ah, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
Look who it was that came to hear. Those who were considered lost, those who desperately wanted to find their way back home and believe that Jesus had the answers and the directions to home. The religious leaders, here's the irony, uh, the religious leaders who thought they were the only ones that knew how to get home were as lost as the people that were listening to Jesus. It's just that the religious leaders weren't really hearing Jesus. They weren't, they weren't listening to learn, they were only hearing to scoff at him. So when Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear, he may have been directing that at the religious leaders who in their lostness didn't realize they needed to find a way home. And so here's how the story opens. Jesus actually tells three parables in this chapter. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But it is this last one that draws us in like no other parable. Chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. The parable opens as a tale of two sons. Now, we call it the prodigal son, but it's a story about both sons. We won't get to the older son until a little bit later on in the series, but it's, it's about both of them. Today, we focus on the other one. And these two boys must have been as different as night and day. Now, you, you all know that Elsie and I didn't have the privilege of raising any boys, but we did have the joy of raising two daughters. But you also know that our daughters are different. They look different. Uh, and they, uh, their personalities are different. There are similarities, to be sure, because they're sisters. But I've always loved the fact that they have been different, that they are unique. As a matter of fact, every one of us in this room is unique. There are no two of us exactly alike. The complexity of our DNA as God designed it is such that we stand alone throughout human history. There will never be another you. There will never be another me. Some people may say, praise God that that's the case. <laughs> but you've but you got to understand, we stand alone in the mass of humanity as, as being one of a kind. And isn't that incredible? No wonder King David wrote in Psalm 139, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. These two boys may have been as different as night and day. It certainly seems like their values and character was different. And yet for all of our uniqueness, for, the, for all of the simple fact that there will never be another one of us, we all share one thing in common, and that is that every last one of us is lost. We are lost in a far country. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. H have you ever stopped to think how rude that was? I mean, this young man didn't come to his father and say, uh, Father, could you advance me a loan on my inheritance? Could you maybe give me part of my inheritance? Could you perhaps give me all of my inheritance. No, he just comes and he says, give me what is due. Give me my inheritance. Incredibly rude. The father was still alive. He was still in control of the estate. It was basically saying, I don't like you. I don't get along with you. I don't like my brother. I don't get along with him. I don't like anything around here. I, I just want to be done with this place and done with you. 
I want my life to be something else. Give me my inheritance. Now, in actuality, folks, no child is owed an inheritance. If you get an inheritance from your parents or your grandparents, you just know this, that's a gift. No, no, nobody owed you that. You're, they didn't have to leave you a dime, okay? That's a gift. And when the Bible says to us that we have an inheritance laid up for us in heaven, you just know that's not owed you. That's a gift. What God has given us and extended to us is a gift. But the younger son's demand gives us insight into his character. And I think his, his father was a smart man. He knew what was going on here, and he knew that if he forced his son to stay there, his son would never be happy. As a matter of fact, until his son had the freedom to live life as he wanted, he could never find his way back home. So the young man got his inheritance early. Actually, both sons did, did you notice? And he divided the inheritance between them. The older son got his inheritance too, but we'll deal with him later. And it's not clear if the young man had all of his intentions in place when he got it, but it didn't take him long once he got it to figure out what he was going to do. And you can just see the thoughts swirling through his mind. You know, could anything be more lame than wasting my time on this out-of-the-way, broken-down ranch? Stupid cows are always getting lost in the surrounding ravines, or they're breaking through the fences into our crabby neighbor's land. I'm tired of smelling like livestock. I'm tired of working shoulder-to-shoulder with Mr. Goody Two-Shoes' older brother. I'm tired of my dad telling me what to do all the time. I'm just tired of living on this ranch. I want to go someplace where I can really live life. I want to go to the big city. I'm out of here. And so he takes his inheritance, and Jesus said, set off for a distant country. Now, when I read distant country or far country, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is, that's not Canada and that's not Mexico. I do not think of those as being far away countries. If you're going to go to a faraway place, I think you're going to travel halfway around the world. You're going to get on a plane and fly for hours. You're going to get on a slow boat, and it's going to take you days to get there. That's a faraway country. But Jesus' listeners would not have been nearly so far-sighted. I want you to consider this possibility. At the time that Jesus tells this story, everything has really started heating up as far as his own life is concerned, and Jerusalem is the place where everything is broiling. They are already planning his demise in the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus stays away from Jerusalem since it's not quite the time yet. As a matter of fact, Jesus crosses over the Jordan River to the east side into an area, a region called Perea. And it is in Perea when he tells this particular parable. Now, just to the north of Perea is an area or a region called the Decapolis. It is a Greek region. And and the word Decapolis, deca means ten, polis means city, Decapolis, ten cities, the Greek region of ten cities. All of those cities now are under Roman authority and, and protection. Uh, And and this is an incredible place. At the time of Jesus, the Decapolis was flourishing. There were exquisite temples for worship and bulging amphitheaters for entertainment that dotted the landscape. Arts and literature flourished in the Decapolis. And sporting events drew huge crowds. Imagine that, sporting events drawing huge crowds. And all of this was just a few miles up the road. Now, I'm convinced on a clear day 
If you were on the other side of the Jordan River, or if you were down in Perea, on a clear day, you could look up in the Decapolis and you could see some of these incredible structures that were there. And on a clear night, if you were sitting on the flat roof of your house just relaxing in the evening and the wind was blowing down from the north in, and you were sitting there in Perea, that you could have probably heard some of the music that was being played or caught the smells of some of the food that was cooking in the celebrations of that place. And you could have thought, wow, what a country. What a place, a far place. And I, uh, I think when I look at that, that you can see and sense the enticement in this young boy's mind. Now, now let me tell you something else about that area. Something else that was plentiful in that area were pig farmers. Uh, you wouldn't have found pig farmers in Judea for, for anything. Uh, but you get into the Decapolis, and there were a lot of pig farmers. Do you remember the, the story that we read in, in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus and the disciples went across the, the Jordan, and they landed in the, uh, in the Decapolis. It was across the Sea of Galilee in the Decapolis area. And there was a man who was possessed of demons, and he came at them. And, and Jesus cast the demons out, and these disenfranchised spirits ended up going into a herd of swine, and they went plunging over the hill into the water and died. The whole region was full of pig farmers like that. That would have been something he would have been ill-prepared for. And, and this is just one of those unique and ironic twists to me. And that is that the Roman legion, there was a Roman legion stationed in the Decapolis, 6,000 soldiers, and they were responsible for what was going on in that area, for the safety and the protection, not only of Judea, but Perea and the Decapolis in that region. Every Roman legion had a mascot or an icon that graced their flags and their banners and maybe was emblazoned upon their shields, I'm not sure. But the Roman legion in the Decapolis had chosen a boar's head, a pig's head, uh, for their mascot. So here you got pig farmers galore, and everywhere you see these Roman legion, this Roman legion going, you know, all their banners and all their staffs and everything all have pigs on them. And you thought Washington, D.C. was the only place that had this much pork. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, I mean, that would have been one of the rude awakenings for this young man if that was the far country where he went. I, I wonder if Jesus told this parable and then pointed just to the north when he told it. And he left and went to a far country. You see, it wasn't far in miles, but it was far in values. It was far in commitment. It was far in principle. It was far away in compromise. Just up the road was a whole new world waiting to destroy this young man. So it is the tale of two sons, but the next part of the parable reminds us that he goes from riches to rags. And, and the verse says, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Do you ever squander anything? A, a, a tax refund, perhaps? Uh, uh, maybe, maybe a golden opportunity? Maybe your college education squandered? I mean, the word even sounds wasteful, doesn't it? Squandered. I have a mental image of this young man hunkered down over gaming tables in the Decapolis, gambling away his money as if he owned the mint. I can see him surrounded by pretty Greek girls who gushed over him so long as the money flowed as freely as the wine. Expensive clothes were on his back. Rich and delectable food were on his plate. Lavish parties were spread at his expense. This was wild living. But I'm here to tell you an inheritance wouldn't last long. Even a good one wouldn't last long when you live life that way and you live it in that area. Well, about the time he ran out of 
his inheritance money, the economy tanked, and a famine swept through the land like a band of ruthless raiders, and all of a sudden, there was no jobs to be had. And even the handful of jobs that were to be had went to local boys, not to boys across the sea or across the Jordan River. And so the, the, there were no crops, and so the farmers weren't hiring. And in desperation, he takes a job as a slave to a farmer. Now, do you catch the irony of this? Here is a young man who couldn't wait to get away from the farm, who was heir to the farm, who was a part of the family that owned the farm, and now suddenly he is reduced to being a slave on a farm, and not just an ordinary slave. He was put in charge of the pig. Now, to us, that, that, that doesn't mean much. A pig is just an ordinary, albeit highly intelligent, animal. Uh, but, but we look at pigs and we sort of think of them as cute and cuddly. If, if you've ever read Charlotte's Web, you know that Wilbur was an amazing pig. If you like cartoons, Looney Tunes, you know that Porky Pig is an adorable, stuttering pig on TV. We, we think of them as cute things. But feeding pigs for our 21st century American minds does not carry in the least the drama that it would have for Jesus' first listeners. When Jesus came to this part of the story, you could have heard a collective gasp that just filtered over the crowd. To the Jewish mind, pigs epitomized everything unclean. Of all the land animals considered to be unclean, it is only the pig that is singled out in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy as both uneatable and untouchable. So here's this young man in the pigsty touching the pigs, and it got worse. He's so hungry, he's so desperate that he wants to eat the pods that the pigs have touched and rejected. So not even the food that the pigs had. There were certain slop the pigs were too discriminating to eat, and that was what he was desperate enough to want to eat. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about this, but I'm wondering if there weren't a couple Jewish mothers in that crowd that passed out at this point in time. The, the, the whole thought of their son being caught in something so incredibly horrible may have been more than their minds could have tolerated. Boy, no matter what you thought, you could not have left this moment without concluding this. Everybody who heard it concluded this for sure. He was lost in a far country, terribly lost. If only he could find his way and that part of the story then introduces us to this whole concept of Palm Sunday. We come to this part of seeking the lost. We call this story the prodigal son. And actually, I, I, I'm assuming you know that, that the word prodigal doesn't appear there. That's a word that we've used to describe the parable, but the word prodigal isn't in the text. Do, do you know what prodigal means? By definition, it means to act rashly, to be wastefully extravagant. It certainly describes this son. He acted rashly. He was extravagantly wasteful with his inheritance, and because of that, he ended up miserably lost in a far country. Shame on him, you say. He should have known better. Yeah, he should have known better. He was raised with better standards. But I should have known better, too. I was raised well. I've made some poor choices in my life. I've, I've sinned. You should have known better, too. You have sinned. We've all sinned. As a matter of fact, folks, we're all prodigals. This is not just his story. This is our story. Now, 
in a good story, all is well before everything goes to pieces. And for there to be a happy ending after the good beginning, there has to be this broken middle. You can't have a fun story. A good story doesn't go like this. It's good at the beginning, it's good in the middle, it's good at the end. What kind of a story is that? That's a boring story. Now, the, the stories we love is it starts good, then the bottom drops out and everything is miserable, and then somehow something happens and it all ends perfect. We love that story, that style of story, because that's us. That's our story. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of human history. It's the story of God's plan from the beginning. Most of us start well as infants. Not everybody, but most start well as infants, but it doesn't take us long to get to the point where we know right from wrong, and that's when the poor choices and the sinful decisions and the unexpected tragedies begin to take place in life, and the middle part of our story is terribly broken. The only undecided factor is how your story will end. Will it have a happy ending? And that's where Palm Sunday comes in. Palm Sunday is the opening salvo in God's attack on the stronghold of sin. In order for us to have a happy ending to our story, someone has to fix the broken middle part. And the only one who could fix the middle part of our story is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus walked out of the city of Jericho to make his way to Jerusalem, where he would enter triumphantly, his parting words to Zacchaeus were these... For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. In the parable, the Son's selfishness stands in contrast to the Father's sacrifice. One was selfish, the other was sacrificial. I got to tell you, folks, I struggle with selfishness all the time. Don't you? I mean, to be honest, I, I, I want it my way all the time, don't you? I mean, we don't always get it that way, but that doesn't mean it isn't here inside my heart. I want it my way all the time. Country musician Willie Nelson in a recent interview said, I'm not easy to live with. I've been used to doing things my own way for so long, I'm not interested in any suggestions. <laughs> well, he's not alone. That's, that's pretty descriptive of most of us. We don't like suggestions. We don't like suggestions from people we love, and we certainly don't like suggestions from God about how we ought to improve our lives. And God understood that. And so God gave us the freedom to go to a far country to experience life without him, to make all the wild living choices that we want because he knew that we would never we would never know how desperately we needed a Savior until we woke up one morning in the pig pen and realized it. In the parable, the son's partying stands in contrast to the father's pain. Do you realize that it is our extravagant waste that caused God to be equally extravagant? This, this story isn't just about a prodigal son, it's about a prodigal God. We don't call it that, but, but that's descriptive of it. Do you realize this morning that what we did cost him the life of his son? Now, I, I want you to know, I have two wonderful daughters that, that I love with all of my heart, but there is no way I would allow one of them to die for any one of you in this room. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you this, I wouldn't let one of them die willingly for the whole lot of you in this room. And I love you. It's not that. It's just that I, I, I couldn't give up one of my girls for you. What God did from my perspective is rash. 
He said, I will allow my son to die in your place so that you don't have to. That's rash. That's extravagant. That's a prodigal God that has come to our rescue. A father who understands the pain of our rejection every day that we stay away from him. You see, a far country doesn't have to be miles away. You can be lost right where you live. This week, I don't know if you read uh, the, the story, but David Ranta, who was released from prison, he'd been behind bars for the last 23 years for a murder that he didn't commit. Uh, faulty evidence and false testimonies convicted him, and while the evidence has been discounted, and while the testimonies have recanted, it still took a long time for them to reverse the decision. But after 23 years, at the age of 58, he walks out of the prison the judge gave him his freedom, and when the judge granted freedom to David Ranta, his daughter, who had been an infant when he went to prison, fell weeping into her father's arms. And why shouldn't she? I mean, right there in her midst, for 23 years, her father had been lost to our society. He'd been lost to his family. He'd been lost to his own dreams, and now suddenly he has been set free. And her joy was overwhelming. You see, who, he who had been lost to her had now been found and free again. So you ask, okay, what am I supposed to do with this sermon this morning? What, what about this story? How, what's this mean to me? Well, I'm glad you asked. And here's the answer. Number one, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are lost right where you live. You may not realize it, but your soul has been incarcerated in a hellish prison run by the enemy of God himself. Only one, only the one who came to seek and to save the lost can set you free. But that depends on whether or not you want to find your way back home some of you here this morning say, I'm not sure I'm done living as a prodigal. I kind of like this wild living thing. Well, then you better pray that nothing tragic happens to you while you're lost in a far country, because if it does, you're lost for good. How can you, in the face of God, who extravagantly gave us his son to cover our debt of sin, continue to squander your life in a far distant land? Today is the day to come home, not tomorrow, not next week. Quit being rash and wasteful with the opportunities God has given you. Come home. Salvation is his gift, and he'll set you free. And if you're already a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, then this week, as we begin this prayer journey, uh, we've talked about this, uh, uh, you know, the books that uh, are, are available to, beginning tomorrow. We're going to do this 40 days of prayer. And I hope all of us, whether you buy the book or not, we can all do 40 days of prayer together as a congregation. And here's what I want you to do in that 40 days. I want you to think of a family member or a coworker or a friend or a fellow student or somebody that you know who is lost in a far country and then begin to pray every day that God will work in their lives and bring people into their midst and work through their circumstances so that they'll come to realize that they need a savior and that you'll be able to introduce them to the one who can help them find their way home. That's what I want you to do. Several years ago, I spoke for a leadership seminar in um, Michigan's Upper Peninsula in January. 
I don't know why God had to send me to the UP in January. That's still a mystery in my mind. And, and because it was January, the, the, the flight stuff got messed up both going and, and coming home. The seminar went well, but nothing else went well. My luggage didn't catch up to me until I was coming home. And, and when I got into Detroit, finally the flight was late, and I had a connecting flight to Indianapolis, and, well, I just took off running through the terminal. And as I got to the gate, the door was shut, and I thought, this is, not, this is not a good sign. And I ran to the window, and just as I looked out the terminal window, they were beginning to push that flight back away from the gate, just beginning to push the plane back. I thought, five minutes earlier, and I would have made that flight. And I stood at the window, and I muttered under my breath. I still remember muttering this under my breath. I said, I'm not going home. I'm not going home. Now, I knew I was going home eventually, whether it would be later on that night or whether it would be the next day, which was more likely. I just knew at that moment when I so desperately wanted to be home, I wasn't going home. I was stuck in an airport. And there was this emptiness and this loneliness, this, this settling that felt so uncomfortable. You ever felt that way? That loneliness and that emptiness because you thought, I'm lost in a far country, and, and I'm not going home. Well, you can. That's the good news this morning. You can. God has done everything possible to set you free. You're lost, but the next move is yours. And if you make the right next move, he'll set you free, and you'll be on your way home.